Welcome to episode 5 of the Creator Insight Podcast. Joining us today is Vasilis Katranidis, co-founder and CEO of Carved, an exciting startup using AI to create photorealistic 3D facial animations for non-existent humans. Carved came out of Vasilis working in the Entrepreneur First program, which pairs up co-founders from all areas to build great companies. This is where he met his co-founder Shash. Vasilis also has a PhD in Manufacturing Engineering from the University of Surrey. Welcome Vasili. Thank you guys. Very nice to be here. Welcome Vasili. Today we're going to be exploring Vasilis's hustling startup as well as discussing his insights on the 3D industry. So Vasilis, tell us a bit about Carved. What problem are you solving and what's the opportunity? Right, so at Carth, we are uh, building the technology to uh, enable the generation of photorealistic uh, digital humans and their facial animation. This originally started as a project in EF when I met my co-founder, and it was originally his problem that he faced when he was developing games as a side hustle again. So a bit about the problem. It is currently, it's, it's, uh, it's really complex and difficult to create uh, believable digital humans, especially at high visual specification. Uh, and that is uh, because all, all of us are really trained to detect any slight deviation from what is considered to be normal. This has two components. One of them is the appearance of the digital human. The other one is the animation of the digital human. Uh, that is why right now you see that we have highly expertise and artistic manual labor required to create any sort of human performance in digital applications. Uh, we identified that problem and we confirmed it with uh, some uh, large games companies. And at the same time, you see that in the industry, everybody is pushing for higher resolutions, higher quality of graphics, and higher levels of immersion in all of the digital applications. So you kind of see that, that there is this dead end coming our way, where on one hand, everything is getting more immersive and higher resolution. On the other side, it's becoming even more difficult to create something that's believable in terms of human performance. That means that if we are to continue down that path, we need to, to scale the production of digital humans and uh, their performances, which is something that you can simply not do when you are involving uh, large teams of, of humans collaborating with each other. As a result of that, we also see that uh, the quality of the 3D assets in general has become much better such as environments or, uh, uh, or objects in, in games and uh, real-time applications. But we see that humans have lagged a bit behind in uh, how they have improved. In addition to that, we see that many games find themselves in the, the ugly position of having to choose how to invest their finite resources in the quality of only a subset of their characters or only a subset of their presence in the game. So you see this uh, inconsistency in the quality of graphics and performance between certain parts of the game or between certain characters and other characters, which are things that really break the, the immersiveness of, of the experience and, and why we need scale. So having realized all of this, uh, we think that the opportunity lies in, uh, in actually realizing that we might have been working wrong uh, all this time in that regard. That is because to achieve realism, it's not an explicit goal which depends on 
the exact location of the vertices of the of the 3D face or the, the 3D asset. So it doesn't make sense to just explicitly control those vertices to try and achieve realism. Rather, it is more of an abstract notion that is uh, binary in nature. It either looks real and convinces you or it doesn't. And uh, it depends on, on the sum of the vertices. It depends on the final image and all, all of the vertices and how they look together. So the way we think about it, it is an ill-posed problem to try and achieve realism by manual labor and, and explicit control. That is because every time you change something, the actual target changes with every move that you make, on every change that you make on, on, on your creation. Fortunately, we can use the same methods that our brains use to perceive realism, to generate realism. In other words, uh, when you use uh, deep neural networks, you can uh, essentially learn different distributions uh, of, of data and learn all the statistical properties that make them uh, activate the neurons of realism on our brains. And then you can imagine new data that follow the same distribution. So they just do the trick and when we see them, they are real. So the interesting thing about this is that beyond the increase in productivity that this can offer, which is orders of magnitude, it enables new ways of controlling and new ways of, of, uh, of creating essentially 3D assets, which are more implicit and feel like you're casting or directing a, a real human except that you're not. Yeah, that sounds re really cool. Um, so, so humans are very, very difficult because of the uncanny valley. Um, and you kind of, humans can tell very, very easily if it's like you go from cute to, oh, even better. And then you suddenly fall down into like a rock with a face, a rock with like human skin and a face. And that's suddenly very creepy. And then it starts going up again into a real human. There's something about kind of uh, hero assets, which I guess you talked about being the kind of the few like very, very high quality assets, which you get to put a lot and lot of time into, which might be the main character, it might be uh, assets which you're very, very close up in, let's say a cutscene shot in a video game, and then there's everything else which kind of has to make do with the small budget that it has. And actually what you talked about in terms of things don't need to be real, they just need to look real enough that people are fooled and convinced that it is real. Uh, I saw this recently, there's lots of stuff around sort of neural physics, using neural networks to do physics, and where it's kind of, you don't need to simulate water or light, you just need to have a neural network that can simulate what it looks like for the physics to be going on. And actually that's a lot less computationally intensive than uh, doing it the realistic physical way. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, what you mentioned right now is essentially how you formalize and how you build intuition systems. Essentially, when, when you see something happening in front of you a lot of times, then you gradually build an intuition on, on how it's going to happen the next time you see it. So basically, you, you show some networks how fluid dynamics should work in a specific pipe, and then you show them a different pipe, and then the same way that we would imagine how fluid dynamics would work in a different pipe, and they can imagine that. So it's it's kind of the same thing happening in our case as well. Absolutely, absolutely. So following on from that, what are some of the key challenges that you found while starting up your own business in the 3D industry? Right, so first of all, business in the real world in the marketplace is very different than research and academia. I found that, I realized that early on. Practically, uh, we speak a different language, language in academia and a different language in, 
in the marketplace. In academia, especially in aerospace, where I was, you devote most of your time on, uh, you focus on detecting the risk and you work towards getting perfect information about the application and then you make decisions. In business, there's no such thing as perfect information. If you know all there is to know before you make a decision, you are too late. So you have to acknowledge and get comfortable with the fact that there's going to be risk in every decision that you make. And you just have to act in ways that this will not lead into a live or die situation for you and your business. But I had to become comfortable with not knowing before I make a decision and just making sure that we are going to survive no matter what happens. The second thing that uh, was pretty challenging and uh, really different that from my previous uh, roles was that talking to creatives and uh, talking to engineers is also a different game. They speak a different, a different language. So in our industry, uh, our industry is inherently visual right now. And the presentation and the looks of our results are very, very important. It can be easily a make or break point. Uh, you, you can make an engineer excited by giving him only one number of a result. But if you want to make people in the creative industry uh, excited, you have to give them a compelling visual result that they want to take out of the screen and put it in their game or their production right now. So it's it's less of a case where you you try to make them understand the potential and you provide the metrics and the, the performance and so on. It's more like a case of, is it is this working right now for me? It's, it's a more qualitative and a more emotional game. Yeah, it's almost, it comes back to the whole, uh, does it look real? Does it look good? And I guess part of that is very, very visual. Yeah, and it's, it's a spontaneous uh, feeling that you just get and everybody has his own way of judging. And if someone disagrees with you, there is no really hard rules that you can go back to and say, no, you're wrong, this is real. So it's just a matter of subjective conviction that you have to achieve with everybody. Yeah, and I guess that's that's why it's so difficult. You have to make something that looks real for the majority of the people. As you said, there's no perfect data, but there's a lot of risk. That is that is the that is the, the point because I agree that it's very very difficult if you approach the problem analytically, if you approach the problem explicitly, if, and you try to say how am I going to create something that is going to be convincing all the people around me and everyone has a different opinion on what's real and what's not. There is no rule, there is no law on what's real and what's not. But then if you realize that everybody is using the same mechanism to make this decision, and this mechanism is by judging all, all the ratios and judging if they look like previous example that he has seen of real people, if you use that, that mechanism to create realism, then it becomes a trivial problem. Yeah, you start to sort of build up that intuition for what people are looking for the more that you do it. And then I guess you can incorporate that intuition into your into what you're building. Yeah, put simply, you just have to learn the real distribution. You just have to learn real examples of humans. Yeah, I guess it's almost business is almost the same similar way to how a neural network learns. You you can try and train on the entire data set all at once, but that's kind of impossible because computers don't have all of the capacity to fit all of that data on the graphics card or something. So you kind of have to take a small chunk of the data that you think might be relevant to what you're doing and try and process that 
and then hope for that gives you some useful insights which will then move you down a path in the right direction of where you want to go. Yeah, definitely. And I guess going back to one thing that you talked about, kind of about the risk, is that's that's kind of encapsulated in the whole thing of like runway, where it's part of, I think Reid Hoffman, the co-founder of LinkedIn, is, describes it sort of, you jump off a cliff and then you try and build the plane on the way down before you hit the water. Um, and that's kind of what, what building a building a startup company is. Yeah, except that in addition to that, sometimes while you're trying to build a parachute, you accelerate your fall. <laughs> yep, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So so moving on from that, um, since you started your own startup, have you seen the creative industry changing with the whole COVID pandemic? And if yes, how, how did it change? And where do you see it like moving on towards? So in terms of the COVID pandemic, I think that uh, obviously there were big challenges in the creative industry. Most of the challenges were in teams where they used to not work remotely. But I think that the tools are in place right now so that you can uh, shift your uh, workflows and your processes into a a remote basis. So I think that it's going to be one of the sectors that is not going to be terribly hit by all of the societal changes that will come with COVID. I have seen firsthand that people that were involved with some kind of physical presence and physical contact in creating their productions are actively trying to find ways and new tools to make them more flexible and to use digital uh, manifestation or image. For example, I'm talking about people that uh, are models, for example. They, they really are looking forward to ways that they could be using their image remotely. Uh, yeah, but in general, I think that it's something that we will survive. And at the end of the day, we will come out a bit better and more efficient after it. Yeah, and especially for, for the games industry, uh, maybe we could, we could even say that they were benefited from the whole COVID pandemic with like NVIDIA having 63% increase of their profits yeah definitely a lot more time to look at the screen at the house yeah especially when you're locked down yeah it's almost as though games there's almost more demand than ever but the human kind of the resources the human resources needed for the production of all of these sorts of games in making the assets doing the programming all of the technical work that's very very limiting on how much they can actually produce so by building the new tools that can actually help uh, smaller teams or teams of people produce more faster that actually enables the supply of games to actually meet the like ever-growing demand. So that is that is a really interesting point that you mentioned right now because we definitely see the, the demand going higher in uh, people wanting to consume visual content and games and applications like that. But we also see that we have never had more games than now. So if, if you just think about it in absolute terms, it's really easy to create a game right now. It's, it's very easy for one person to just go on a game engine and uh, create something that people define as a game. The problem lies, though, in that there are so many games like that and there is a finite amount of attention and of screen time that you can get from people that consume games around the world. 
so that it's a very competitive game creating a game itself <laughs> it's a very competitive uh, business and you see that people end up playing uh, you see that 10% of the most successful games take 90% of uh, of the users and the and the screen time of the users so that is where we want to come in to enable scale in high quality differentiated content so that people can create quality games that can compete in that 10% and they don't have to make uh, uh, compromises in in, uh, in their creative work with lower quality content. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, it's, it's really interesting to see a rise of sort of uh, game developer YouTube videos being made. There's all sorts of people um, sort of broadcasting their process of how they make the games. And you can kind of see how uh, a lot of them are kind of pixel-based, all of this sort of thing, and, and it's a lot of work even just for that. Uh, so having one person having to make, like, let's say, the equivalent of a full AAA game, that's almost impossible. They, I'm, it's, like, uncertain whether or not they could do that in an entire lifetime of work. So by building and giving them access to more powerful tools, it really enables kind of individual creators to make more of the kind of niche games which can be uh, appealing to all sorts of smaller subsets. Whereas at the moment, I think I heard it uh, described as kind of games at the moment, they know how to make the uh, only the Hollywood action blockbuster game, uh, which is kind of, it has to be huge and it has to be big and it has to sell amazingly well. And that we've lost the ability for games to be like very small and niche, but still make enough money and make a profit because they're actually not very expensive to produce, uh, which I think has become a more of a problem as we've kind of got high, high fidelity graphic capability on the hardware um, without the tools necessarily keeping up with that. And it, it makes a lot of sense, right? Because if the risk of creating a, a game is really high, if it's going to be a make or break for, for your business, then when you're devoting this kind of resources to create a high quality game, you must make sure that it's addressing the widest possible audience. It's it's a totally financial-based risk decision. But if you think about it, culture and uh, creativity, they are created by smaller people trying to experiment and trying to to work their ideas forward <clears throat> that potentially do not address the whole market. So it's really important to give the tools to smaller teams that to, to essentially afford to fail and experiment with new types of games and new new types of aesthetics and so on. And they don't have to be constrained by extremely stylized characters or by extremely pixelated content. Absolutely. So it's almost kind of... Uh, like the rise of Netflix and the streaming platform, suddenly you have all sorts of uh, ability to make kind of more niche shows um, rather than the ones that have to be broadcast on TV and they have to be either make or break. And suddenly you have, because suddenly you can consume TV in a different way, you have this explosion of, of different kinds of shows from all sorts of people with different ideas for how shows could be made and all this sort of thing. And And I think maybe that's lacking in the games industry at the moment or lacking to some degree. And I was interested uh, in, in what your view is some of the like, we've been touching on this already, but what are the kind of the big challenges facing the industry at the moment, do you think? Yeah, this is definitely, this is definitely one of them. 
right now, if you do want to play a high quality game, you know that it's going to be a, this Hollywood effect blockbuster type of game. You cannot play a high quality immersive game uh, that it's really, really nice. Or maybe there are some examples, but at least there are, there are few, they're not the, the rule. Uh, another challenge is uh, essentially the, the, this growing gap between supply and demand of high quality content. Uh, so we see that the tools become better. More people are interested in creating content and creating games, but at the same time, it becomes more difficult to create specific types of content, such as one example is digital humans. So we need to have scale in that. Another type of this, uh, another manifestation of this uh, gap of supply and demand is not only uh, the content that goes into games, but the content that goes into manifestations of the same game. So right now, if you think about animation, it's mechanically repeated uh, in every instance in the game. If you think about characters, they are created in uh, production time in the game, and then you play the game and you play those very characters. But things could be different if you had games where characters were actually created in the game and their animation was plausible and new every time that you played the game. So I see the future going towards that direction definitely in more of an autonomous and procedural generation of assets and, and experiences in the game. Uh, another challenge, obviously, that we touched upon is the, the development costs that have been rising exponentially. And this is because we have been trying to, to tackle the problem of high quality content by throwing human labor on it. And the more you grow your team larger, the more you have overhead to worry about and the larger, the, the longer the iterations become until you reach at the result. And all of this has a cost. Uh, the rising complexity is, is enormous and uh, we definitely are moving towards a more immersive and higher quality in terms of graphics experiences and the way that we are working towards that is not correct at the moment because the costs are skyrocketing. Yeah, that's, that's a huge thing that we have also identified um, in the space. So the cost of game development is not at any like in any way sustainable um, either is the time that takes to like produce games because if you if you look at the past like uh, the first grand theft auto um, until the second it was like one or two years between and then now it's been like 10 years and we haven't seen a grand theft auto release so it's like um, the time and the budgets needed to produce these games are just not not sustainable anymore. There is a, there is a great blog blog post by Raf Coaster that that has accumulated some data points in that regard and discusses this problem in more depth. I would advise anybody who's interested about that to just look at some current game economics by Raf Coaster. Yeah, and actually on this point as well, we kind of see the game, the cost of a game has kind of stayed the same at sixty-ish dollars or forty pounds uh, in English money uh, for the last maybe. Well, it's been it's been that for as long as I can remember, which is probably around at least ten years. And so we've, with that kind of that price staying the same, and yet the costs of game production still rising, 
We've seen all of the introduction of all of these new monetization strategies like microtransactions and putting loot boxes and all of this like day one DLC and all this sort of stuff, which is almost it's it's a very difficult place to be in because the game companies, obviously, they need to recoup their money in order to keep producing games. And they're stuck in this problem where the cost of games is rising, but they can't really increase the cost of each individual game itself. Because I guess suddenly when a game is like $100 for just the base game, it starts to be, oh, well, maybe that's a bit expensive for me. Maybe if you think about when you think that, oh, well, I could buy like with three games, I could buy an entirely new console. Suddenly there starts to be a different calculus in your brain. So they have to start introducing these monetization strategies, which start to annoy consumers and gamers because they're like, oh, well, I don't want to pay for all this extra stuff. But actually, it's kind of, it's there trying to recoup some of that money that they've spent precisely because the cost is just skyrocketing and, and they don't know what else to do about it. Yeah. So there, there are two things here that, that I think I should mention. One of them is that I don't think that these in-game transactions are uh, going to go away. And I don't necessarily think that they are a bad thing inherently if they're done right, the right way. The more immersive uh, an experience becomes and the more things you can do inside the experience, these, uh, these mechanisms can enable uh, creation as well. So we see that there are virtual uh, walls where users can actually create content and create a market inside there and sell that content. So I don't see it as necessarily a bad thing to enable this kind of interaction within the boundaries of a game. But what I think that is, it's, it's bad for the industry and for the consumers is when you try to, to change the, the gameplay and when you kind of introduce this, this grind, as they call it, where essentially you make the game so boring, you make the, the consumer to to spend so much time to reach a certain place that he can buy his way into really easily if he just pays you five bucks or something. So essentially it's a matter of, is my time trying to achieve X for two hours worth it of, or should I just pay five, five dollars to do that? This is, I think, a not so uh, good practice. Yeah, it's, it's almost, it's like, um oh, am I going to spend hours and hours grinding around this thing or am I just going to spend a small amount of extra money and get the XP boost, which will allow me to move with less friction through this game? And it's it's kind of, there's a way of doing it which is kind of adds to the experience and there's a way of doing it which is kind of, oh, well, we, we need to recoup our money, so what's the best way that we can do that? Oh, well, we need to degrade the experience to get people to spend money uh, more more on that. And actually as well... Uh, it'd be good to hear your thoughts on kind of the culture of crunch around the production of games, actually in, in VFX and, and all sorts of different areas in 3D as well, where it's kind of, you see lots of articles coming out of uh, people and artists being forced to work long hours, overtime, potentially even unpaid overtime to get things done. And it's like, yes, there's some aspect of it that they they love it. Uh, and they just want to be there, and it's great fun, and they get to work on these products and games that they love. But there's also a very unhealthy side where it's kind of you have burnout among even young artists who are maybe like just one year into the industry, and 
And that's partly because I guess it's just so labor intensive and so labor heavy and the expectations are so high that you just get a lot of pressure to, yeah. to meet these deadlines. Well, again, it, it all boils down to complexity. So if, if you have a team of 10 people trying to, to create a scene in a game and, and you realize that at the last moment something small needs to change, then obviously you need to iterate with a team of 10 people. If you have a team of 100 people, then this causes a lot more trouble, as you can imagine. And the deadlines are deadlines because they don't move in time. So when, when you have cases where you don't calculate exactly what is going to go wrong and what is going to need adjustment before the final version and so on, you have this, uh, this extra time and this uh, extra labor that needs to be put in by the same people. And this is what leads to these situations. And, and what people must realize is that when you increase the, the complexity in the game, you cannot really calculate what will go wrong even even the smallest thing can have uh, a large impact at the end that's, that's at least how how i see it yeah so yeah i guess final question is do you see the whole 3d and gaming industry accelerate in the near future and what are the requirements for it to you know um uh set off and go towards um a very good route. Accelerate in terms of what? In terms of um, new games coming out or new new methods, new tools for accelerating the production or for making it cheaper, making it more sustainable. Uh, yeah, definitely. I think that this will happen. So. First of all, I see things uh, in, uh, in general, in, in visual content creation converging together. I see this is already happening. You already see this happening. The, the major game engines are now uh, essentially presenting themselves as visualization platforms. They're not only for games. They are also for corporate visualizations and uh, pre-visualization in, in film and, and television productions uh, for VR applications, for for architecture, for car manufacturing and design. So we see this, this convergence happening in general uh, because essentially everything is a, is a 3D asset, right? You, you use the same tools for every kind of visualization and, and real-time production especially has, has become, real-time rendering, sorry, has become so good that it's uh, comparable to, to film. So there's gonna be a massive convergence. Uh, people are gonna start using generative models using uh, deep nets to generate more complex assets. So all of those parametric models that we used to be using uh, to generate content, uh, they might work good in some cases. One example is Petri, where you can generate uh, new trees that look really good. In other examples, uh, they will be replaced by generative models. And uh, I really think that in the future, we will be looking back at how we were uh, kind of putting this manual labor to create content and it will feel like we're trying to to eat soup with a fork. <laughs> and uh, that's kind of one big area of opportunity. And are there any other big areas of opportunity that you kind of see emerging in the future? Uh, yeah. Uh, one that I'm particularly uh, excited about is the 
autonomous generation of content. So instead of instead of having a production stage where you control what goes in the application, essentially you create rules and you deploy the application and the application takes different manifestations with regards to who is using the application. So this is like a level of a level of abstraction above on what we're doing right now. I definitely see this happening. I definitely see virtual reality applications that can be uh, relieved by the same person that you don't have to go in and, and face the same avatars and face the same rooms and face the the same whatever. Um, and in some applications, I think that this is going to be crucial. For example, if you think about the all of those training uh, virtual reality applications, like uh, the one that you have that that you're trained for public speaking, it doesn't make sense for you to be in a room with the same number of people to train uh, your public speaking skills. You need to have different people in the room every time so that you can believably relieve the experience and actually get the benefit of training in virtual reality. Uh, yeah, I th think this would be a, this would be a very exciting it will be a very exciting place to be over the next few years. I think it will be. Well, we're on board for that. I think we're we we very much agree with you that this is kind of it's a big area of opportunity. It's a big area of growth, and it'll be really exciting to see how it changes and how it improves and how how kind of more and better experiences can be produced for all sorts of different people uh, in the future. Definitely. Definitely. And and with that, uh, we're going to close. So, Vasilis, uh, I'd like to thank you. And just to remind people, uh, today we were chatting with Vasilis Katranidis, co-founder and CEO of Carved, a startup using AI to create photorealistic 3D facial animations of non-existent digital humans. And we've discussed the challenges and opportunities facing the 3D and games industry. So I'd like to thank you again, Vasily. Thank you for joining us on Creator Insight. Thank you, guys. It's been great. And if you'd like to take a deeper look at what Carved are up to, you can visit their website at carv3d.co.uk. If you'd like to learn more about what we do at KDIM, visit our website at www.kdim.com or follow us on our LinkedIn page.